0: And the first one you'll find on page 30 of your pew Bibles. Page 30, and it's from Genesis chapter 28. And beginning to read at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Now our second reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2 and you'll find it on page 966. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: so I ask that the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I suppose coming from the world of school chaplaincy, as I do, I wanted to start with, I suppose, a little story from the world of education. And I'm going to move down off the diocese. are involved in the world of education, there is always the fear and the threat of that next inspection, whether it's a pastoral inspection or an academic inspection. And there's one great uh, story about a school spect- inspector who was really the equivalent of the James Herriot of Yorkshire. And if there are any teachers out there amongst you who are still looking for stocking fillers uh, in this last-minute rush uh, to Christmas, I would suggest you go and discover the books of a man called Gervase Finn. Because Gervais Finn was probably the most, uh, we go back to the lectern? All right, um, back up the lectern. <laughs> right. So as he said, um, he discovered that she, in her own mind there was what was a, a dual carriageway. Now, for many people, the idea of a dual carriageway conjures up great images of road rage, uh, where people give you no leeway to make a mistake, where you're continually being pushed on, where you're being caught up, where your anxious moments of missing an appointment suddenly uh, become reality, where you're not allowed to pull over and take a break, where you'd never be allowed to do a U-turn, uh, as we found out yesterday trying to get out of a summer turn, having done a quick bit of uh, Christmas shopping. But we know, uh, particularly the drivers out there, that a dual carriageway is really a, ho- a horrendous um, piece of um, Road creation. But how nice to think that in a child's mind, what it can appear to us, the spirituality of the child is still so intact, particularly at that age as the transition from primary to secondary, that in their mind, they can see something which to the adult world would appear to be horrendous. They can see it or mistake it, what a beautiful mistake, they can mistake it to be something so beautiful, something so special that they would really want to have a part of it and they would really want to be involved in what it's all about, so much so that they would spend hours creating a beautiful painting of what in their mind's eye was this thing that they'd heard their parents talking about, this dual carriageway. And I think the great challenge at the moment, particularly within our schools, is How do you keep that spirituality intact? How can that child be allowed to continue to have an idea of God's creation as something beautiful and sublime as they move on to secondary school? And a great survey was done uh, not so long ago by a man called David Hay, who along with uh, Rebecca Nye uh, wrote a book called The Spirit of the Child. And what they realized was that there's an inherent spirituality in primary school children. But that spirituality is something which is so precious to them that when they take it on to secondary school, it gets knocked about, it gets ridiculed, it gets belittled, and suddenly the one thing that really kept them going in their difficult moments, the one thing that they wanted to share with the people special, the new friends that they were going to make, suddenly becomes, as it were, a point of attack for other people. It becomes a vulnerable point. The faith of the child becomes so vulnerable that the child, a bit like the best family silver, which I would imagine will be appearing in 48 hours' time on Christmas tables, it only ever comes out once a year. Why does it only ever come out once a year? Because we don't want it to be knocked about. We don't want it to be broken. We're not prepared to take risks with it. We don't want other people to know we've got it just in case word goes round the local area and some people find themselves getting closer to it than you might want. And in many ways, I'd imagine that's what we also do with our faith as adults too. What we have is something so special, something so precious, something that sustains us when things are going wrong, and also something which we praise when things are going right in our life. But it's something that we're not sure, can we take it out of our comfort zones? Does it work beyond uh, the beautiful glass doors of St. Andrew's in Oxford? Or is it something that, because it works for us, We will keep it locked away as we gather here and we worship and we praise in such a spectacular fashion as we've enjoyed this evening. Or are we prepared to take risks with it? There's another story which uh, comes down from Scotland as well. Uh, The National Gallery of Scotland took, uh, were gifted, what a beautiful gift this is. They were gifted a series, a complete series of Poussin, the French painter's seven sacraments. And because they'd been gifted these paintings, they were in such a hurry to get them out on display that they just found an empty bit of wall space, did a quick weekend B&Q job on it, drilled in some nails, put these paintings up, and said, ha-ha, we have the prize, we have the complete set, one of only two left, of Poussin's seven sacraments. And they got a letter, not from Gervais Finn, but they got a letter from a man called Anthony Blunt, And Anthony Blunt, in those days, before we knew about the other side of him, he was actually the Queen's curator of paintings. And he was an expert on Poussin. And he wrote to the National Gallery in Scotland and he said to him, you have done such a disservice to these treasures. In your rush to get them out on display, you have totally missed the point as to why Poussin actually painted them. Because, yes, they are part of a series, but they're actually painted to be viewed individually. And so having been berated by Anthony Blunt, the National Gallery took the paintings down. They listened to his expert advice and they created an octagonal room in the Scottish uh, National Gallery uh, in in Edinburgh. And if you're going up to Edinburgh for your Hogmanay, and I'd suggest that's a place uh, to travel to and you're going to revel in all that goes on in Edinburgh in a couple of weeks' time, well, if you find yourself at Marks and Spencer's on uh, Prince's Street, uh, buying your sandwiches and you head over to Prince's Street Garden, the best free loos in the whole of Edinburgh are directly opposite this room that's being created uh, in the National Gallery of Scotland. So if you end up in these loos, please, please, please do go and see these paintings as well. So what they did, they created an octagonal room. And obviously, seven paintings, one extra wall. Well, the wall wasn't there. They left an empty space to encourage people to go in. And what they did was they looked at these four paintings in detail. And they, re- they saw there was a beautiful marble floor in four of the paintings. So they replicated this marble floor on the floor of this new room. And they also saw that in the other three paintings there was a spectacular chandelier. So again, they replicated the chandelier. And they created a brilliant octagonal bench. And so when people go in and sit on one of the sides of this octagonal bench, they can view one of the paintings in its entirety but they only have peripheral vision of what's happening uh, either side. And that is such, I believe, an important story as well. Going back to, and this, I believe, as you can see, it's pretty much based within the world of school, but you don't have to use your imagination that much to transpose, I think, what I'm saying beyond the world of school, perhaps into your own church environment, into your own community environment, into your own family environment. Because what happens in a school is we're in such a rush at the start of every academic year to get people in. And I'd imagine there's a pressure on churches as well to get the people in, excuse the expression, get the bums on the seats and just say to everyone, yep, we've got them all, they're all here, they're all worshipping here on a uh, Sunday night wherever we are in Oxford. And in doing that, what we do is we miss the fact that each individual who comes in has actually got his or her own story to tell. So often we're in such a hurry to just to see people as part of a collection, to pigeonhole them so as new pupils arrive in school, you can sing, go and join the rock group, uh, you look like a sportsman, um, get yourself out there for rugby practice or lacrosse practice or whatever. But if only we just took a moment to stop and listen to the individual stories of each person, each new person who joins our community, then how much time can be saved later on in the school year when a problem arises with that individual, and you realize, gosh, if only I'd listened eight months ago to what the issue or the concern or the worry was, I could really have preempted the bigger disaster which is now brewing up around us. And I believe that's the same within our places of worship too, how great it is to welcome new people in, but how quickly sometimes we are just saying, okay, you're now part of us, and we just forget to listen to that story. We forget to appreciate the gifts that each individual takes in. And the great thing about a school life is, okay, if you're a good rugby player, you have to wait till you're in the sixth form to captain the Rugby 15. If you're a great violinist, you have to wait again till the sixth form, maybe, to be the leader of the orchestra. But the lovely thing about the spiritual life of a school or the spiritual life of any community, whether it's up in Gordonston or down here in Oxford, is that its future is so dependent on the newest arrival And that newest arrival needs to be allowed to take ownership of the spiritual life of that place from day one because what they can bring into that place can bring so much new life, can bring in so much excitement. And if just people stop and listen to the story, it can make uh, everything really come together in a very spectacular way. So where are we going with our address this evening? I would like to think, having given you this idea of dual carriageways, we can really now, for the next few minutes, just focus on the concept of journey and all the journeys that are going on at this time of year. And I'll appreciate there'll be many of your congregation who are making journeys, doing that trip to in-laws, just as we've done, coming down uh, from the north of Scotland, heading in all directions. As one year they go to one side of the family and the next year to the next. So there will be journeys taking place all around us. But what we mustn't forget is the unique individual journey we all make, each time we come into this place or any place of worship. And that's how I now want to just quickly focus on our first reading. The story uh, from Genesis about Jacob is a spectacular one indeed. It's a real Christmas story. It's a real family breakdown story. It's a real story of, is the message of God going to make sense at any point in this person's life? As you know, there is Jacob And he's on the run from his brother Esau. And one wonders in our communities around the country... Around the world, indeed, how many families really do concentrate on the issues of breakdown during the season of Advent? How many families actually make that effort, as we're challenged to do during the four weeks of Advent, to reconcile ourselves to one another, to gather families together so that on Christmas they can celebrate the great joy and a wonder of the newborn child born in that major? There was no chance absolutely no chance that Jacob was going to be reconciled to his brother Esau, not in the next four weeks, not in the next four years. This guy was on the run, and you'll know the story, how he had stolen the birthright uh, off his brother. But the sadness of this story goes back to when they were growing up together. Because within a family, those two brothers could have been the best team that anybody could put together. Because there was Jacob, and he in a sense was the mummy's boy, He loved the cooking, he loved staying at home and helping her in the house. There was his brother Esau who much more aligned himself to his father and he was a hunter-gatherer. And how sad it is that the hunter-gatherer and the cook, the chef, couldn't come together, and one bring in the food and the other turn it into something beautiful, something to share within the family. But that wasn't how that family operated. And a quick scratch on the card quickly reveals that it wasn't the brother's fault. It was the way that the parents favored one rather than the other. And I wonder, as we think about presents we're gathering at this time of the year to share within members of our family, hopefully all the presents carry equal weight within our own families and that they're all given with such beauty and grace, that such issues of family jealousy are really not part of the Christmas story. But not for Jacob. So what does he do? He is now so, so, so tired that he just sees a stone. And this stone was going to be the the biggest, fluffiest, a uh, duvet, stroke, continental, square pillow uh, that he could purchase at that time of year. So he placed his head on that stone, and immediately he went into a deep sleep. And what an amazing sleep this must have been—a sleep where he was reinforced by the presence of God. How, in his mind, he saw angels ascending and descending, not just from heaven, but down to him as an individual. And so, when he woke up in the morning he had actually found, very briefly, he had actually found peace of mind. And I wonder how many people, not just in this uh, congregation gathered here this evening, but out with this, are seeking peace of mind at this time of year. And where will they go to find it? Well, where will they go to find it? Who knows? But let's hope that all of us can say to ourselves, or we can wake up now again, or we can come across people now again, or we can come across places now again where we can just shout out with the utmost joy, but still worried and still scared, because let's not kid ourselves. Jacob's problems were not solved when he woke up that morning. All he was given was a brief bit of respite a brief chance just to take stock of where he was going. And he came out with these great words. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway of heaven. So where tonight perhaps are the awesome people in our lives? Who do we turn to when we need that brief moment just to be reinforced, just to be hugged, just to be told, just hang in there? Hang in there. I can't solve your problems for you, but I can let you know I'm here and I'm standing by you. And where are our awesome places? Where are our gateways to heaven as we approach Christmas Day in these uh, few hours that remain ahead? The awesome places and the awesome people. But ultimately, within that story, I think it's the idea of the stone which really comes forward. And listening to the great words this evening was that one about Uh, The stone shouting out, if we don't praise. And there's that great line, isn't there, when Jesus is coming down uh, off the Mount of Olives where he's berated because his disciples for once are prepared to take the family silver out of the cupboard. They're prepared to move out of their comfort zone. They're prepared to enter into a risky situation where they could be arrested. And they are so full of the fact that for once they've actually worked out who this guy is that, in fact, he is the Messiah, that they start singing his praises. And we sang those praises together earlier on as they sang Hosanna. And what happens? Nudge, 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 quickly, quickly. We're going to do you a favor here. Tell those guys to shut up now, and we can probably get you down off the mountain in one piece. And Jesus replies to those great words, if the Lord's disciples are silent, the very stones themselves will shout aloud. And that's what I reckon as we look around the stones that support us. And turn those stones into what are the foundations in your own life. If we don't stand up for what we believe in, and as we gather here as a Christian community, if we're not prepared to stand up for Christ when things are getting difficult, what right do we have to expect him to be alongside us when things are going well? And so very much so, the foundations in our own lives will start shouting out if we're not prepared to take that risk, to expose our faith beyond our comfort zones, to take our faith outside of this place. Oh, and yes, keep coming back on Sundays to have it reinforced, to have your awesome uh, places and your awesome people around you. But make sure it's not a sense of total comfort that you can only operate with it in a place uh, such as this. When I look around and I see you know, people so full on a Sunday evening, the great excitement isn't anything that I'm saying. The great excitement is what you can take away having encountered Christ through his music, through his word, through gathering the people sitting behind in front of you to your left and to your right, and how you can take that out of here uh, and share it with people uh, beyond uh, this place. And so as we gather this uh, to an end, where are our journeys taking us uh, this evening as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ on Christmas Day? Well, certainly the story of the wise men was definitely the story of a journey, And in a way, it fits in nicely with Gervais Finn's uh, idea of a jewel carriageway, because they were bejeweled, one would imagine, or certainly they are on the Christmas cards, although the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, would disagree with you uh, this year, uh, that I think it's the wise men who are now in question. But whether the wise men physically are in question by the head of the Anglican Church, I don't think is the point. If their message is still there, it is such a, a special message to share, a journey where they were prepared to take risks, a journey as they moved out of their own country into a foreign land, a journey in which they did pay deferential uh, worship to the ruler of that country as they met on level terms, kings gathered together, but a journey in which they said, we're now prepared to move out of our comfort zone, we're prepared to take a risk, because we're not going to go back to Herod and report where things are really happening. We're going to make our own way back to our own country and just hope and pray that that young, vulnerable family that we stumbled across under that jewel in the sky, under that star, will remain safe. But could they solve the problems of the young family? Of course they couldn't. But at least they were there to recognize what was going on. And for that young family, the adventure, the horrors, were only about to begin as they had immediately to flee to Egypt and go on a journey of their own, which would be touch and go the whole way as they tried to safeguard that vulnerable little child who had been gifted to them uh, at that time of year. Lastly, Christmas is also a time of celebration. It is a time, yes, to be aware, I think, of how important it is we don't just package this up on a one-off occasion. It's a time when we unwrap again the wonderful story of the Christ child coming into the world, a time where we're prepared to run with it, even if the batteries aren't part of the package when we open it up, a time when we're prepared, even if it's not quite what we thought we were going to get, we still put the smile on the face, which reinforces the person who has taken the time to give us that gift and say, I'm going to run with this, I'm going to go with this, I'm not quite sure what the instruction manual is all about, I might even in the back of my mind ask you if you've still got the receipt and how many days have I got to return it. But before I get to that point of returning this gift, I want to see if it's going to work for me. I want to see if I can make it work for others. And I reckon the gift of the Christ child does not work if we keep it to ourselves. I reckon the gift of the Christ child is um, just like someone who I think who said that lovely joke, this year he was going to wrap up a present and on the outside of it he was going to say, just give her some batteries and say present, not included. But I reckon with Christ you get the total package. But kept to ourselves, the batteries will run out. Unless we know who to turn to, who to share that gift with, it is not going to run for very long. But as soon as we pass it on one to another, as soon as we're prepared to take a few knocks, as soon as we see that it does actually come with a pretty impressive warranty, this gift, a warranty which is an eternal warranty, not just three years, but one which we have to continually keep on renewing as we develop our relationship with Christ. But when we understand the concept of relationship and not just a one-to-one engagement with the creator on this, his birth, then we have a chance for it to keep going. And just to finish with, I'm going to come down again because this requires a bit of, um, a bit of action. Um, I will raise my voice if necessary. I mentioned when Andrew was um, interviewing me that I spent a considerable part of my professional life serving in the Army. I was an infantry officer uh, in the Black Watch. And one of my jobs, at one stage I was working with the 51st Highland Division as their adjutant based in Perth. And if you go round Scotland, particularly to where Gordonstone is up in Murray, and if you turn right and drive down to places like Focobers and Huntley on the way to Aberdeen, you will see the most incredible stones that really do cry out at you. These are the war memorials in that area. And if you turn left, you'll come across places like Forrest and Nairn and Inverness, and you'll see war memorials to the Seaforth Highlanders, the Cameron Highlanders, going towards... Um, Aberdeen, you'll come across the Gordon Highlanders, head south towards Perth, you come across the Black Watch War Memorials. And there's an incredible story that goes with that unit, the 51st Highland Division, which when you join up, they not, it's not a story that's locked away not to be shared, it's rather a story where you have to become part of it and start retelling it. You will all know what happened at Dunkirk, how... It was turned, uh, disaster was turned into a victory. But what many people don't realize is as they were preparing to turn d- disaster into victory, Churchill had a look round and said, I need to leave one division to show the French that we're still standing alongside them. We can't save their country anymore. We can't solve their problems. But we'll be there and say, look, we're here. Hopefully this counts for something. And so he decided that I will leave the Highland Division behind, the 51st Highland Division. And they were all told, a bit of a false promise, they were told if you hold the line and get everyone off that beach, then you'll have done a great job. And they did that. But they were also, I suppose, promised, if this was a Christmas present that came without the batteries, they were also promised that if you head down to St. Valerie, we'll make sure there are some Royal Naval destroyers that will take you all home. By the time they got to St. Valerie, no naval destroyers, instead they found a Rommel waiting for them who arrested them all and many of them, those who survived, were taken off to prisoner of war camp. But when they were in prisoner of war camp, what they decided to do was to keep their spirits going. And they set up a Scottish country dance club. And this is a bit about Hogmanay if you're heading off to Edinburgh. I'm just going to give you a quick little bit which will keep you on your feet so you don't embarrass yourselves when you're invited to do a a reel. If someone says, do you want to do the reel of the 51st Highland Division, put your hand up and say, I know that dance because I'm about to tell it to you now. And in this dance, the first thing that these officers said was, we've lost so many good friends On the march from St. Valerie to prisoner of war camp, we need to create a dance to remember them by. So they said, let's create a new reel. And in this reel, the first part of the dance, every time—and this is a good thing about this dance as well—if you can't find a partner, dance it with someone of the same sex, because when it was first danced, it was danced by Highland officers. There were no women uh, available to dance it with at the time. So have no shame. Have no embarrassment if you have to ask someone of the same sex to dance this dance with you. But the lovely thing about this dance is every time you invite your partner to dance with someone else further down the line, you always introduce them by name during the course of the dance. And that's important because what is a welcome? A welcome only is good if it works more than once. And you got it, I got a lovely super welcome when I came in here this evening. And I'm sure you are great at welcoming people as they gather in here each time. And reading your uh, the, the notes about the church, it's all about welcome. But how good is your welcome Or within a school setting? Eight weeks into an autumn term when everyone's getting tired. Are you still prepared to make that effort? to follow up that welcome just as well as you'd have done it on the first day of term or the first day of the Christian year. So this dance reminds us, always have a powerful welcome, but make sure you can sustain that welcome beyond, as it were, its first contact. The next thing in the dance is they create half of a saltire, and you'll know the Scottish flag. Here is the saltire, okay? And so what they do as part of the dance is they create half of it and it means that the dancing couple in the middle as they're in the middle they reach out to their left and to their right and there's someone there to support them someone there to balance them not really to solve any problems or issues or worries or concerns out, but just to say grab my hand and I can get you through the next bit I don't know if I can get you through the end of it but just hold on tight and really within our communities too any good church must be able to provide a good welcome particularly at this time of year But any good church should never leave anyone or hang them out on a cross to dry by themselves. Because what we need is when in our deepest, most desperate moments, a good worshipping community has people who will be there to support the people who have fallen down. Just to pick them up, not solve all their problems, not make any false promises, but just to say, I'm alongside you, here I am, and I can promise you that every time you do fall down, I will pick you up and I maybe I can't help you out beyond that but I'll certainly put you in touch with somebody that, who can. And the very last bit of this dance, so far is danced by four couples so that's eight people in total and so there's a couple at the bottom who so far have done nothing in this dance. They are the ones maybe who see all the lights on on a Sunday evening in this place and maybe who stand on the corner of the road every Sunday night and think I wonder what's going on in there. Can I actually make my way in? They're the ones in the playground who, at playtime, really want to be part of that team or want to be part of that skipping competition, but just stand on the edge and no one actually invites them in. But the lovely thing about this dance is in the last bit of it, everyone joins into a circle and the people who have been watching and waiting are welcomed in and they've been watching the dance develop so that when they're welcomed in, They do not embarrass themselves because rather the other six have shown them what to do and want to share this precious gift with them. And what happens is that last couple work their way up to the top so that they then start setting off on the dance themselves. And so as we prepare for Christmas, how are we going to welcome the Christ child this year? Are we going to be able to be alongside those people who are teetering on the edge? Are we going to make the time to get alongside them during this Christmas season? And last, but probably most important of all, are we prepared to share this great message which we're given every year? Are we prepared to invite more people in, to welcome them in, so that we're not just a holy huddle, but rather we're a circle of power and influence which can really take this Christmas message forward? And I know in a moment we've got amazing grace, and that fits in nicely, I suppose, with the Scottish theme, but I'm going to ask you to pray in a moment. I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer which is really special to me and the group of people that um, I had the privilege of serving with uh, for a good few years. It's a prayer of the Black Watch. An Advent, if it's about anything, it's about watching and waiting, waiting for that great excitement of the arrival of Christ uh, on Christmas Day. So let us pray. O Lord, whose strength set us fast the mountains, Lord of the hills to whom we lift our eyes, grant us grace that we of the Black Watch, once chosen to watch over the mountains of an earthly kingdom, may stand fast in the faith and be strong until we come to the kingdom of him who has bidden us watch and pray, thy Son, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.